The Israeli military says it has recovered the bodies of three hostages who were abducted during the October 7th Hamas attack. It's Friday, December 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, disagreements over who should be in charge of a post-war Gaza are emerging between U.S., Israeli, and other world leaders. Plus, Hunter Biden is accused of owning a shell company. Now a lawmaker leading the probe is facing the same allegations. Also this hour, a case involving a Colorado lawyer who was suspended for using chat GPT to draft legal documents is raising ethical questions about the use of AI and the law. When you have a legal brief that's written by AI, you've really delegated that lawyerly duty to someone else. Celtics win, sunny and breezy today in the low 50s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. The European Union has voted to formally open membership talks with Ukraine, as well as Moldova. The head of the European Council, Charles Michel, says the vote is key. This is extremely important. We want to support Ukraine. It's a very powerful political signal. It's a very, very powerful political uh, decision. Uh, and today and tonight, I, I, I think uh, to the people of um, Ukraine, we are on their side. And this uh, decision made by the uh, member states uh, is extremely important for the credibility of the European Union. But the EU won't be able to send $50 billion in new aid to Ukraine. That was blocked by Hungary's prime minister. Viktor Orban is Russia's strongest ally in the EU. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has met officials in Israel. The defense minister says Israel will need months to defeat Hamas. Sullivan will now meet Palestinian authority leaders in the West Bank. An opinion poll taken in the West Bank and Gaza finds the war has boosted Hamas's popularity. But a majority of Palestinians still do not support the militant group. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Tel Aviv. The Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, a well-regarded independent think tank, conducted the wide-ranging poll in person with more than 1,200 respondents. It found that support for Hamas had tripled in the West Bank, but a majority in both territories still don't support the group. The survey also found nearly 60 percent want the Palestinian Authority dissolved. The Palestinian Authority administers parts of the West Bank, but is widely seen as corrupt. The U.S. wants the PA, as it's called, to help run a post-Hamas Gaza. Meanwhile, the vast majority in the West Bank think Hamas will win the war, only half in Gaza think the same. Surveys in Gaza were done during the ceasefire. Frank Langford, NPR News, Tel Aviv. In the U.S., a group of current and former Alabama prisoners is suing the state for prison labor practices. As NPR's Meg Anderson reports, the prisoners say they are forced to work for little or no pay. Working in prison is common across the country, and that work is typically required. The plaintiffs in the Alabama lawsuit work or worked in construction, factories, food service. They claimed if they refused, they risked being punished with things like solitary confinement or being deprived of food. Robert Earl Council is one of the plaintiffs. He's currently in prison. Alabama seems to be addicted to cheap labor. People right now being forced to work for free while someone else reaps the benefit from their profits. The plaintiffs are suing more than two dozen government officials, public agencies, and private companies, including Alabama Governor Kay Ivey and the State Department of Corrections, which says it can't comment on an ongoing lawsuit. Meg Anderson, NPR News. On Wall Street, stock futures are higher. You're listening 
to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The jobs of more than 600 faculty and staff members at Boston Public Schools are on the line. That's because the district is losing millions of dollars in federal pandemic funding early next year. District leaders tell the Boston Globe they don't think additional funding from the city will be enough to make up for the shortfall. Principals plan to meet with school communities over the next month to decide which cuts to make. The body of a U.S. Air Force staff sergeant from Pittsfield is expected to arrive at Westover Air Reserve Base this afternoon. 24-year-old Jacob Gallagher was killed in a military aircraft crash last month in Japan. Nancy Cohen reports the public is invited to pay their respects during the procession in Lee and Pittsfield. Gallagher, known as Jake, graduated from Taconic High in 2017. He served in the 43rd Intelligence Squadron. The Air Force described him as an airborne linguist specializing in Chinese Mandarin. An Air Force major who served with him described the staff sergeant as a beloved husband, father, son, and brother who brought his unit together with humor and energy. Members of the Pittsfield Police and Fire Departments, State Police, the Berkshire County Sheriff's Office, and others will escort his remains in a procession on the Mass Pike to Lee, Lennox, and then to Pittsfield, past Taconic High. For the New England News Collaborative... I'm Nancy Cohen. City officials will consider a plan to build affordable housing units in Boston's West End Library. The $117 million project would add more than 100 affordable housing units to the neighborhood. Similar initiatives are being considered at libraries in Chinatown and Dorchester. Two-way traffic is back on Interstate 195 in Rhode Island near the Massachusetts border. Rhode Island transit officials reopened lanes along the Washington Bridge early this morning. Transit officials abruptly closed westbound traffic on the bridge this week after discovering infrastructure problems. The closure led to heavy traffic congestion in the area between Providence and Massachusetts' south coast. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. The Celtics remain undefeated at home. They won last night's game against the Cleveland Cavaliers. All five of the team's starters scored double figures last night. Final score was 116-107. to The Seas now turn their attention to their home matchup against the Orlando Magic. The Bruins are on the road tonight. The team will take on the New York Islanders at 7.30. Sunny today and breezy with highs reaching the low 50s. Tonight's skies remain mostly clear and temperatures drop into the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny but cooler with high temperatures only in the mid-40s. Sunday, cloudy with a chance of afternoon rain. Temperatures will be in the low 50s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career, with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. President Biden's national security advisor is in Israel trying to get the various parties to the Israel-Hamas war to focus on the future. Who should be in charge of Gaza 
When the war ends, the U.S. and Israel do not share the same vision. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports on the main proposals. U.S. officials talk about the day after, that's when the intensive fighting is over, and the day after the day after, which is the long-term vision. For the U.S., it's ending Hamas rule in Gaza, having the internationally recognized Palestinian leadership take charge, and creating a Palestinian state in the occupied West Bank and Gaza. Vice President Kamala Harris. We want to see a unified Gaza and West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. And Palestinian voices and aspirations must be at the center of this work. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this week thanked the U.S. for its support, but added, yes, there is disagreement about the day after Hamas. He said he would not allow Gaza to be ruled by the current Palestinian Authority. Israeli analysts say Netanyahu has his own concerns. There may be new elections. Netanyahu may try to compensate for his government's security failure with the October 7th attacks by positioning himself as the right-wing leader who will prevent a Palestinian state. Former Israeli peace mediator Barak Greenapple. Most likely, Netanyahu will be the one leading Israel, at least in the short term, after the war is over. And his aspirations regarding Gaza are most important to take into consideration. Vice President Harris has laid out three main areas of focus for post-war Gaza. One, reconstruction rebuilding Gaza's decimated infrastructure and homes. The oil-rich Arab countries in the Gulf are expected to finance a lot of that, but they have their own demands, including a Palestinian state. Qatari Foreign Ministry spokesman Majid Al-Ansari. Transferring the problem by saying that the international community should come in post this conflict and just fit the bill for uh, all the destruction that happened, it is the occupier that needs to think of their occupation before we say that the international community should come in. Another huge issue for the day after is security. Who will patrol Gaza and prevent attacks on Israel? Vice President Harris again. Until then, there must be security arrangements that are acceptable to Israel, the people of Gaza, the Palestinian Authority, and the international partners. Israel still wants the freedom to carry out military raids in Gaza whenever it wants, like what it does in the West Bank. Michael Milstein is a Palestinian affairs expert now serving as a reservist soldier in the war, doing strategic analysis for the Israeli military. He says after October 7th, Palestinian forces cannot be trusted to patrol their own borders. It is obvious that the main gates from this entity and the world must be controlled by other forces which are not Palestinians, also Israelis, but there may be also an international forces. The U.S. has suggested that some former Palestinian security personnel in Gaza who are not loyal to Hamas could help build a future security force. And then there's the final issue. Who will govern Gaza's day-to-day civilian affairs? Some Israeli and Western diplomats have raised the idea of Gaza's tribal leaders, prominent families of each city, taking charge. But Palestinians say it shouldn't be up to others to choose their own leaders. Palestinian activist Fadi Koran. Nobody will be accepted by Palestinian society unless Palestinians feel that that person is there to represent their will, and they chose them. Many Palestinians support Marwan Barghouti as a replacement for the current leader, Mahmoud Abbas. But Barghouti is in Israeli prison for his role in the Palestinian uprising in the 2000s. 
Many here think he could be freed in a big prisoner swap for the Israeli hostages in Gaza. Koran says it's dangerous for activists in the West Bank to even talk about replacing the Palestinian Authority leadership now during the war. Those who even discuss it can be arrested or harassed. But this is the the conversation happening quietly across our society. There are lots of ideas being floated in coffee shops and embassies, but no clear plan to bring long-term peace to Gaza and Israel. And despite all this talk, a senior U.S. official told reporters that it would be Israel largely dictating the outcome. Israel's leaders are focused on the war, trying to eradicate Hamas rule in Gaza after the October 7th attacks, but they have not spelled out a clear strategy for what comes next. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. House Republicans have launched an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, but what exactly is he accused of doing? The Justice Department has charged his son, Hunter Biden, with nine counts related to his failure to pay federal taxes on millions of dollars of income. Here's what Hunter said outside of the Capitol building two days ago. Let me state as clearly as I can, my father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. So what's this inquiry all about? We're going to ask Republican strategist Scott Jennings. Hi, Scott. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So is there any evidence that Joe Biden did anything wrong? Well, Republicans believe that Joe Biden was involved with Hunter Biden over the years. They think they've uncovered enough smoke, uh, uh, as it were, to launch this impeachment inquiry and see what else they can find. So uh, uh, Democrats, of course, dispute this. Hunter Biden disputes it. But the basic Republican viewpoint is, is that Joe Biden was the product and that Hunter Biden was the salesman and that they uh, abused that over the years to enrich themselves. And uh, some of that is borne out in, in what you see in the Hunter Biden uh, indictments. Now, every House Republican voted in favor of formalizing an impeachment inquiry, but there were some that said they don't believe the evidence is there. One even suggested his colleagues were engaging in retribution impeachment. So why did they all vote for it, but also some saying they didn't believe in it? Well, I think that they believe there's a difference between an inquiry, which is just a furtherance of the investigation, and actually going through with impeaching Joe Biden. Uh, I thought it was sort of uh, uh, incredible, frankly, that they got the votes for this. Um, But getting the votes for an impeachment, a full-blown impeachment, where you send it over to the Senate, I think is going to be a much steeper climb, given that about 18 Republicans in the House represent districts that Joe Biden won in 2020, and they probably believe their constituents would rather than be focused on other things. Is this playing politics, though? Oh, of course. I mean, there's certainly people, I assume, that want to use impeachment to muddy the waters. You've got Donald Trump facing legal issues this year, so they'd like to have Joe Biden you know, wrapped up in some legal issues to muddy the waters with the American people. I think there are certainly some Republicans who see this as a revenge impeachment, given that Donald Trump was impeached twice. If you want to make this fly with the American people, you have to find something concrete and understandable to get the American people on your side. There is some evidence that the American people think an investigation is fine. An NPR Mm. poll this week you know, showed 49% of Americans agreed with the inquiry, but that's different than actually going through with the full thing. 
And you think that's unlikely? I mean, Senate Republicans are even more skeptical, skeptical, as you mentioned. I don't think it's unlikely that they uncover some evidence. But of course, whether that evidence is enough is in the eye of the beholder. One thing that is a political uh, certainty is that Joe Biden will never be convicted, <laughs> no matter what happens uh, in the current makeup of the U.S. Senate. So it is a bit of an exercise in futility. How does this factor into the 2024 election strategy? Well, I think for Joe Biden, it, it ties his White House up a little bit. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, as a distraction, it puts the Hunter Biden stuff at front and center in the news, which they probably don't want. And for Republicans, the peril would be that they're seen as focusing on things that aren't, uh, you know, inflation, the economy, immigration and other issues. So I do think there's some peril for both parties here as this goes down the tracks. Scott Jennings worked in the White House of former President George W. Bush and is a Republican strategist. Thanks for your time. Thank you. 50 years ago today, the American Psychiatric Association did a big thing. It removed homosexuality from its list of mental disorders. And that decision helped change how gay people were perceived in America. We were cured overnight by a stroke of the pen, just as originally we'd been made sick by probably a stroke of the pen. Barbara Giddings was an activist for LGBTQ equality, and before her death in 2007, Giddings spoke with journalist Eric Marcus for an oral history book called Making Gay History. Now, Eric Marcus hosts a podcast called Making Gay History, which draws from hundreds of interviews from the 1980s and 90s. Marcus says it's hard to imagine today what it was like for gay people to suffer under the label of sickness. You could argue on moral grounds whether or not being a homosexual was a good or bad thing. You could say that it was sinful. If you've been labeled someone who is mentally ill by medical professionals, that's a very hard thing to fight. One of the people who helped bring about the change was Dr. Evelyn Hooker. She conducted a study in the 1950s that concluded being gay is not a mental disorder. She spoke with Marcus before her death in 1996. I know that wherever I go, whether I know it or not, that there are both men and women for whom my little bit of work and my caring enough to do it, has made an enormous difference in their lives. Today, Marcus is focused on a fight for transgender people. What we see among those who are leading the backlash now is that they've gone after the most vulnerable and the least understood people within the LGBTQ community. Marcus takes heart in the bravery of people like Frank Kameny, who in the late 1950s was dismissed from his position as an astronomer because he was gay. Before his death in 2011, Kameny fought for gay rights and for psychiatrists to remove the illness label. We are the experts on ourselves, and we will tell the experts they have nothing to tell us. But it took a few years to get that across. One of the voices from the past heard on the Making Gay History podcast. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Friday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, cases of tropical diseases that were once mostly eliminated in the U.S. are now popping up. And experts say officials should be doing more to prevent outbreaks. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. This compelling compilation of works explores black identity, community, and power. 
closes December 31st. More at PEM.org. I'm Scott Tong. We'll convene our weekly politics roundtable with a look at the legal tanglings of both the current president and his predecessor. And one expert's concerns and hopes for AI's potential. She wants to make sure strong regulations are in place to protect against bias. Next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny and windy today with highs in the low 50s. Increasing clouds tonight and we'll have lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a mix of sudden clouds along with highs in the mid-40s. Sunday, mostly cloudy with a chance of afternoon rain. Highs will be in the low 50s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Join WBUR for our annual reading of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol on Tuesday at City Space. All proceeds support Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Go to WBUR.org slash events for tickets. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the FDA, its Remove the Risk campaign encourages people to dispose of the unused, unwanted, and expired opioid medications in their homes— Learn more at fda.gov slash remove the risk. From Total Wine and More, where customers can find gifts for people on their list, from a Cabernet to single barrel bourbon, totalwine.com. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina, available to adults 21 or older. And from Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby, dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years. The Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. When the nominees for the Golden Globes were announced this week, our next guest, Jeffrey Wright, got a nod for Best Performance by an Actor in the film American Fiction. He plays Thelonious Monk Ellison, who's trying to make a name for himself in a publishing world that keeps insisting he be not just a writer, but a writer who writes about, quote, black stuff. The industry wants him to traffic in tropes about poverty and violence. And there's a scene where he's looking for his titles in a bookstore, and he finds they've been shelved in the African-American studies section. Wait a minute, why why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me, Ellison. Oh, bingo. No no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The the blackest thing about this one is the ink. (laughs) Can you tell me what Monk's going through in his career here when we, really, when we first meet him? Well, he writes about the things that interest him. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, uh, those consumers of books, those who still read, are not necessarily so interested. (laughs) He writes about uh, Greek mythology as it relates to the black community, things like this that are are esoteric but are meaningful to him. So he is frustrated because he has, prior to this, encountered a writer named Centara Golden, played by Issa Rae, who writes, oh, more um, accessible stuff. How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? If I is, Ray Ray is going to be a real father this time around. 
Ultimately, he decides out of frustration and spite to write his own version of a novel like that, hoping that he's going to kind of reveal the hypocrisy of the publishing world. He writes an urban novel, and which blows up in his face. It blows up in terms of its success. It becomes the most successful novel he's ever written, and it blows up because he's written it under a pseudonym and has to assume this character, Stag R. Lee, who becomes a kind of Frankenstein's monster that circles back to come after him. And this person that he has to assume the character of uh, Stag Arley is quite the opposite of anything that Monk is. If we could just, we're just going to play a clip of him trying to pretend to be the person he's created. Mr. Lee, is this, um, is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some college boy can come up with that? No, 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 I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this is the opposite of who Monk is from this upper class Boston family. And if you could just talk about your character realizing like, oh, this is about to be published and I'm going to get more money than I've ever imagined. Well, yes. Uh, I think the impulse for him is to recognize the absurdity of it and in many ways to resist the temptation. But at the same time, his family is kind of crumbling around him. His mother is ailing. There are other crises that the family has endured and he is asked to be the adult in the room. And there are pressures that come along with that. It was one of the reasons that I was really drawn to this film on an emotional level. Yeah, I mean, he struggles with the decision and and multiple times thinks about pulling out. But like you point out, he's dealing with trying to figure out care for his mother. And it's quite expensive. He's partially estranged from his brother and sister at the beginning of the movie and finds himself to be the person who has to pay for everything. You say you were drawn to the film because of this family story. If you could talk more about that. Well, yeah, at the time that I received this script, I'd lost my mom uh, about a year or so prior. I'm so sorry. I understood yeah, a very, in a very specific way what that moment is for a person. And I also think that aspect of our film provides some universal space for people to inhabit. This is a family that's, you know, dysfunctional and functional and loving and maddening like anybody else's family. It just happens to be inhabited by these black folk. It's in some ways extraordinary in its ordinariness. I haven't seen, you know, a family like this often that's messy and beautiful and and black, <laughs> just universally human. So much of the storyline is about white guilt, white America's idea of what representation is. There's a, a great line in the film, I'm paraphrasing here, white people think they want the truth. What they really want is absolution. Can you talk about that? Well, I don't think that the film is targeting any one demographic and laying blame there. What I appreciate about the film and about the book that it's based on is that the writers are fluent in race and race language particularly and context. And so they can create dialogues that are smart. I don't think we do that enough in our country. I don't think we have the capacity to do that. We see it bubbling up and like like just boiling over now. We are informed 
from the beginnings of our country and every day by race dynamics, all of us, whether we want to admit it or not. And either because we are afraid to confront that messiness or we have been damaged by that messiness to the point where we, we lack a clarity and objectivity, we're not capable of having smart conversations about the issues and therefore we keep repeating the same stupid mistakes over and again. So the film, I think, at least for the couple hours that it's shining on a screen, at least provides a space, I think, for a, a bit of a heightened conversation. That's Jeffrey Wright. He was just nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance in the new film, American Fiction. Congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WB Wars Morning Edition. We'll get some insight into how people feel about the economy from Investopedia's list of most searched terms for 2023. It's 7.29. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel for leading companies and institutions for more than a century, client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter, online at nutter.com. And Canyon Ranch, Lennox, the all-inclusive wellness resort in the Berkshires. Spa, fitness, gourmet cuisine, and restoration for the holidays and the new year. Wellness and relaxation, a three-hour drive from Boston. Learn more at canyonranch.com. That's canyonranch.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Associated Press reports a Republican congressman leading a House investigation into Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings is connected with a shell company himself. GOP Congressman James Comer chairs the House Oversight Committee. Republican investigations into the president's son include allegations of the Biden family using shell companies to hide money from foreign interests and undisclosed sources. Brian Slodisco is with the AP. He says the findings about Comer are from interviews and records involving real estate in Comer's home state of Kentucky. Slodisco spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. He owns about 16,000 acres of land, and all of those he, he painstakingly details on his congressional financial disclosures. That is, except this six acres of land he co-owns with a donor and are held through a limited liability company called Farm Team Properties. That property, because it is held by this company, he does not have to reveal what the assets held by it are on his financial disclosures. In an interview on Fox, Comer described the Shell Company label used against him by the AP as financial illiteracy. This week's signaling by the Federal Reserve that multiple interest rate cuts are likely next year sent the Dow to a record close again yesterday. This is NPR News. This is WBMR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says Israel's current tactics in Gaza are causing far too many innocent civilians, including children, to lose their lives. The Democrat says he fully supports Israel's goal to eradicate Hamas, but he's calling on the Israeli government to immediately change its strategy. It means that Israel ceases this bombing campaign. 
that's just killing far too many people. And by the way, not yielding great results. I mean, when you look at the lists they have of senior Hamas leaders killed, they're not very long. This week, UNICEF named Gaza the most dangerous place in the world for children. Palestinian health authorities estimate more than 5,000 children have died there since the start of the war. The funeral for the Waltham police officer who died last week in a fatal hit-and-run crash takes place this morning. Officer Paul Tracy was killed alongside National Grid worker Roderick Jackson while working at a construction site last week. Hundreds of officers gathered in the city for Tracy's wake yesterday. A New Hampshire man accused of driving into the men pleaded not guilty to manslaughter charges last week. Celebrations recognizing the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party begin today. Elected leaders gather at Faneuil Hall this morning to kick off events commemorating the rebellion that helped set the stage for the Revolutionary War. Planned events include speaking programs, fife and drum performances, and it'll culminate in a recreation of the Tea Party tomorrow evening. It's 733. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium. Purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Celtics are celebrating a nine-point win against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Final score was 116-107. to They'll play at the Garden again tonight, this time against the Orlando Magic. And the Bruins face off against the Islanders in New York tonight at 7.30. Highs in the low 50s today. It'll be sunny and breezy. Clouds move in tonight as it falls to the mid-30s. Highs in the mid-40s tomorrow under partly sunny skies. Sunday, highs in the mid-50s with cloudy skies that'll likely give way to rain in the afternoon. It's 36 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doors Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Tropical diseases that once were considered distant problems for much of the country are now closer to home, as close as the nearest mosquito to you. This year, health authorities began reporting more locally acquired cases of malaria and also a skin disease spread by tropical parasites. Experts say the U.S. can expect more tropical diseases and should be preparing. Here's NPR's Ping Huang. In the mid-1980s, 80s albopictus mosquitoes came to the U.S. through the used tire trade. These insects, also known as Asian tiger mosquitoes, can carry viruses like dengue, Zika, and chikungunya and they quickly adapted to city life in the South and East and Western U.S. That's an effect of globalization. Then there's climate warming. As the range of tropical insects and the diseases they carry spreads, Tom Scott, a medical entomologist, says we are not ready. If we don't do anything, which would be basically to do what we're doing right now, it's going to get worse. Scott spoke at a workshop at the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine in Washington, D.C. The topic was arboviral threats, that's mosquito and tick-borne viruses, and how countries like the U.S. should be doing more before their full arrival. 
But Aaron Staples, with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says the U.S. has lost a lot of its capacity to track insects. There was an entomologist in every state in the United States in 1927, and that was due to trying to eradicate malaria. Where are we now in 2022? We've got 16 state entomologists. That means the nation's ability to track viruses like West Nile is sparse. We're not getting great information because we haven't maintained our infrastructure. Experts say Singapore is a shining example of mosquito control. Lee Ching Ung with the Environmental Health Institute Singapore says they've cut the number of mosquito vectors by cleaning up the city and teaching good practices from a very young age. My four-year-old daughter will come home and tell me about vector control because she learned it in kindergarten. Singapore also has a big, expensive surveillance program, which tracks dengue cases by neighborhood and sends phone alerts when cases are high. In Singapore, people can also be fined or jailed for having mosquito breeding sites at home. That approach may not work in other countries, but other tools could, such as vaccines, which do exist against some of these diseases, and building future cities in ways that are mosquito-proof. Ping Huang, NPR News. Earlier this year, a Colorado judge suspended a lawyer for using ChatGPT to draft a legal document. This was not good, because when you request information from large language models, as they're called, they sometimes give you facts and sometimes fakery, what are called hallucinations. And the chatbot made up legal citations for that document. They were offered in a real-life court case. The episode points to a bigger question. How, if at all, should artificial intelligence influence the courts? Andrew Miller says we should begin by noticing that AI is already there. I think it's fair to say that artificial intelligence of some kind or another has been a part of how lawyers do their job for quite a while. Even if they weren't really aware of it, we rely on electronic archives we have for decades. Famous ones are Westlaw and LexisNexis. Miller is a lecturer and director of the Yale Law School Center for Private Law. He says AI may not be new in the law, but its role is expanding. I think there's a lot that's different. When you use an AI tool, be it ChatGPT or something else, to gather information, essentially you're at the front end of the legal research process as a lawyer. You're gathering facts and canvassing the law. But those are raw materials, and it's your job as a lawyer to use your lawyerly skills and knowledge and training. In fact, you have an ethical duty uh, to provide competent legal representation. When you have a legal brief that's written by AI, you've really delegated that lawyerly duty to someone else. Now, interestingly, delegation is also part of the legal profession. We delegate to humans all the time. And it's actually okay if a summer intern who isn't a lawyer drafts something that later becomes a brief. But the key is that the buck stops with the lawyer who files the brief. To what extent does someone have to think about what a large language model produces? I'm thinking about the way that we as consumers are continually given these terms of service that we're supposedly going to read and click I accept. And of course, we glance at it and click I accept. You have to do something more than that as a lawyer, don't you? You're exactly right. A professor colleague said to me, you know, when a doctor uses an MRI machine, the doctor doesn't necessarily know every technical detail of the MRI machine, right? And my response was, well, that's true, but the doctor knows enough about how the MRI works to have a sense of the sorts of things that would be picked up on an MRI, the sorts of things that wouldn't be picked up. With ChatGPT, we don't have, at least not yet, particularly well-developed understanding of how our inputs relate to the outputs. Does that imply that maybe this technology should not be used in the law at all? 
I wouldn't necessarily go that far, but I would say that at this juncture, a lot of caution is warranted. There's actually been uh, a lot of action in this area already. So in federal courts throughout the United States, the courts issue local rules, which basically say, here are our unique twists on the general rules that govern your behavior in court. My understanding is some of them require disclosure when you use these technologies. Others simply reiterate the existing standard, make it clear that the existing ethical standards still apply. Do you consider it a very real possibility, if this is not minded properly, that a large language model could put somebody in jail who doesn't belong there, could cause someone to lose a case that they should have won, some, some true injustice? It's the same flavor of risk as the risk to a client of a lawyer not supervising his or her underlings properly. The difference, I think, is that the ingredients of good supervision, the things you have to do and not do when delegating certain parts of your lawyering to someone else, have been clearer, I think, in earlier eras. Generally speaking, wherever there's a risk of lawyers doing their job badly, there's a risk to the clients. I feel that I hear you trying very hard to be thoughtful and nuanced and careful about this technology that scares a lot of people. And I do wonder if there's any aspect of this that does give you nightmares. I am worried that this technology in trying to let loose things I haven't thought of or we haven't thought of that we will need to take account of. But I do have some cautious optimism that we are entering not just a stage of technological development at a very fast pace, but also a stage of serious vigilance. And I've been impressed at the speed with which um, court systems and state bars have at least started to ask these questions. I think the potential is great, but I also think the potential for abuse, unintentional harm, even intentional harm is also great. Andrew Miller is director of the Private Law Clinic at Yale Law School. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBOR's Morning Edition, a Republican lawmaker leading the probe of Hunter Biden is now facing a similar accusation of misconduct. Clear skies and windy today in the low 50s. It'll grow overcast tonight and will be in the mid-30s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow in the mid-40s. Back to the mid-50s on Sunday, but it'll be cloudy and there's a good chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 36 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. A new report finds that nearly 2,000 Massachusetts residents have worked on the Vineyard Wind Project. The report, obtained by the Boston Globe, studies the first two years of the project. Most of the people working on the job live in southeastern Massachusetts. The project is expected to be done by the end of next year. Two local craft breweries plan to join forces. Dorchester and Aeronaut Brewing Companies are creating a new firm together called 
Tasty Liquid Alliance. Both breweries will keep their branding separate. Matthew Malloy is CEO of Dorchester Brewing. He'll also lead the new organization. We share a similar culture. We celebrate diversity in our tap rooms and with our staff. And we, the real important thing is we both care rapidly about uh, making high-quality products. Brewing operations will be centralized at Dorchester Brewing. It's 7.44. At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Every year, the finance website Investopedia offers a list of 10 most searched words and phrases. I wonder if Investopedia is ever one of them. Anyway, Waylon Wong and Adrian Ma from NPR's The Indicator looked into what the 2023 results say about our collective economic psyche. Caleb Silver is editor-in-chief at Investopedia. The number one term, and this was a little bit of a surprise, but this was a really deep term, is the American dream. Ooh. Yeah, no, it's a really weighty term. I mean, Caleb says that he has never seen American dream in the top 100 terms in previous years. But for some reason, in 2023, it shot all the way to the number one spot. I was surprised that American dream is even a term on Investopedia because to me, it's much more of a literary term than a financial term or an economic term. Yeah, it is not a classic financial term. It is a metaphysical term packed with meaning. But here's how Investopedia currently defines this term. Quote, the American dream is the belief that anyone, regardless of where they were born or what class they were born into, can attain their own version of success in a society in which upward mobility is possible for everyone. The Investopedia article says the term was coined by the historian James Truslow Adams in a 1931 book. The article also points out that home ownership is considered one of the hallmarks of the American dream. All this is why Caleb, you know, when he sees American dream suddenly appearing in the top 10 list, to him it is a sign of something dark. I think this was a year... 2023, when a lot of people came to terms with the fact that that's not real anymore or it's not real for them. And I think that has a lot to do with this big spike we had in mortgage rates. Housing became very expensive and very tight, no supply. And people were realizing for the first time they may never, ever be able to buy that house. Caleb says there is this undercurrent of anxiety that runs through the list. Like number two is bank failures, you know, RIP Silicon Valley Bank. Number three is artificial intelligence. 
another big news topic that, for a lot of people, might stir up worries about the future and job security. And like we said, American dream is not really a financial term. It's a literary term. So we wanted to call up someone with more of a literary brain than a coldly rational economist. In other words, we wanted to talk to a poet. I am Tiana Clark, and I am a poet and essayist. We asked Tiana to give her impressions of the Investopedia list. Honestly, looking at the list, the first emotion that came to me was that people are afraid. Yeah, for Tiana, the term American Dream brings to mind this famous Langston Hughes poem titled Harlem. And it opens with a question. What happens to a dream deferred? I think money is very emotional. The younger generations are, are rethinking if they want to get buried, if they even want to have a home. We have covered on the show how negative feelings about the housing market have soured consumer sentiment this year, even though many other economic indicators are pretty good. There's a lot of contrasting feelings in the economy, which for Tiana means there is also room for hope amid the anxiety. When I looked at this list, it just looks like they're trying to educate themselves to maybe translate that fear into something, into actionable steps, into a way to make them feel more capable and more possible. Adrian Ma, Waylon Wong, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. It's finally a Friday morning on WBUR. Coming up at 820 on Morning Edition, Michigan has become the first state in the country to automatically restore voting rights to people as they leave prison. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy. A woman from the Navajo Reservation who bootstrapped her own business in Silicon Valley is home to nurture entrepreneurs there. And she says the business world can learn from Native values, too. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Disagreements are emerging among world leaders over who should govern Gaza after the war there ends. A Republican lawmaker leading the investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is now facing similar accusations of misconduct. And Prince Harry has won a phone hacking lawsuit against a British tabloid. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museums, more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. Low 50s and windy today under clear skies. It'll grow cloudy tonight as it falls to the mid-30s. Partly sunny tomorrow in the mid-40s. Mostly cloudy on Sunday in the mid-50s. There's a good chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 36 degrees in Boston. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Nearly two months after a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, families and their community are still looking for answers. The gunman opened fire in a bowling alley and a pool hall, and 18 people were killed. 13 were wounded. As Anthony Brooks of member station WBUR reports, some of the victims' relatives now find themselves unexpectedly in the role of gun control activists. Decorations are up and holiday music plays in many of the stores along Lisbon Street in downtown Lewiston. There are also signs that read Lewiston Strong, reminders of the deep grief that remains here. Following the worst mass shooting in Maine's history, people like Arthur Bernard are suddenly activists, pushing for restrictions on the kind of weapon the shooter used to kill his son. There has to be some basic common sense here, and what does it take Bernard was playing pool with his son, Artie Strout, at Shemengi's Bar and Grill on the night of the shooting. Arthur headed home early while his son stayed on at the bar. I says, all right, kid. I says, I'll talk to you later. He says, I love you. I'll call you later. And I hadn't driven a mile. And I got a call. <sighs> Artie Strout, married with five kids, was among the dead. The last picture on Artie's cell phone was of his dad holding a pool cue not long before that night turned so dark. The killer, an Army reservist who took his own life toward the end of a two-day manhunt, had several weapons that he'd purchased legally, including two AR-style semi-automatic rifles. I understand gun rights, but assault rifles? They're not made for anything but killing. It's been quite an experience that none of us ever thought we'd ever face in our life. Leroy Walker is a city councilor in Auburn, just across the Androscoggin River from Lewiston. His son, Joe, was the manager at Shemengi's. For hours after the attack, Walker didn't know if his son was dead or alive until state police officers came to his daughter-in-law's house to deliver the news. My son had been shot and killed at the scene. We found out that my son was a hero, that he had picked up a knife somehow and was headed towards the gunman, and, and the gunman, of course, shot him uh, in the stomach area twice. Joe Walker left behind a wife and their blended family of two children and three grandchildren. His father, Leroy Walker, says he now favors tougher gun control, though he says he's not sure what should happen to stop the killing. But there needs to be some way to control how these weapons are fired to kill people. One that can fire 30 or 60 or 90 shots off and to be able to kill people in seconds, that needs to change somehow. It remains to be seen if state lawmakers will change anything on guns when they reconvene next month. On the federal level, Maine Senator Angus King is sponsoring legislation that stops short of a full ban on AR-style semi-automatic weapons, but it would limit the number of rounds a guns magazine could hold. The key here is that in the midst of a mass shooting, it's when the shooter has to reload that there's an opportunity either for people to escape or to disarm the shooter. We think that initiative really has no chance of going anywhere. David Trahan is executive director of the Sportsmen's Alliance of Maine, an influential gun rights group. The group helped write Maine's yellow flag law, which is supposed to give police a way to take guns away from people if a doctor deems them dangerous. In the case of the Lewiston shooter, it didn't work, despite multiple warnings that he was suffering a mental health crisis. Family, doctors, and police all knew about it, but Trahan says... Nobody heeded the warnings. The people that have the responsibility did not initiate the tools that they had 
to protect the public. For some reason, this guy fell through the cracks. Trahan says laws should focus on mental health, not guns. But gun control advocates say states with the lowest rates of gun violence do both. They have red flag laws, background checks, bans on semi-automatic rifles, and high-capacity magazines. Arthur Bernard says Maine should follow suit, even if it's too late to save his son, Artie. His daughter, Brianna, turned 14 six days after this happened. You know, her mom has been trying to talk to her about what she wants for Christmas. You know, she keeps telling her mom, you can't give me what I want. (laughs) Many Americans share Bernard's grief. Since his son and 17 others were killed in Lewiston, there have been at least five other mass shootings across the country. For NPR News, I'm Anthony Brooks in Lewiston, Maine. One of the hottest toys this holiday season has little chance of making it into the hands of children. That's because people in their 20s, people who are adulting, are grabbing up a toy known as Puffer Snoopy. Puffer Snoopy is a plush version of the cartoon beagle from Peanuts. He wears a puffy pale blue jacket and a green and yellow ski cap. Snoopy was selling for $13.99 at CVS until stores sold out. People from Generation Z, we're told, are posting on TikTok about their frantic searches. I just randomly saw that freaking Snoopy with the puffer jacket and the hat. One more CVS I'm going to and then I'm going home. I promise. Just one more. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with Snoopy, but... I have to have one. Come with me to try and get one. No! No! Oh my god. They're gone, bro. Okay, we in the Christmas section. <laughs> Look! Those were TikTokers Noah Lloyden, Barley Bim, and Bella Diaco. So why are these young adults so crazy for a fictional dog that first appeared in a comic strip in 1950? Snoopy seems to just wear his heart on his sleeve and is something that people can identify with. Elise Hannum wrote about this for The Atlantic. There's a sense, I think, among Gen Z and young people that there's a lot going on in the world and there's overwhelming feelings coming at you and too much is going on. Hannum says Gen Z leans into the melancholy side of Snoopy, posting video clips with darker music instead of the original soundtrack. But I'm a creep playing a clip of him walking alone in the rain, seeming dejected, and you play these modern songs that are really associated with a certain flavor of an internet sad girl, it weirdly works. Yeah, there is that side of Snoopy. Hannum also thinks young people are forming an emotional connection with Snoopy that is giving the Peanuts characters new life. I don't know how long this specific iteration of the fandom will last, but I think Since it's already lasted nearly 75 years, it does seem like it's here to stay as people build their own relationship with them. Nostalgia for a time you didn't know yourself. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. The Peanuts theme is by Vince Guaraldi. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. WBUR supporters include Loomis Sales, offering an undergraduate summer internship development program that provides first-generation college students with the strategies, skills, and access to networks for success in the investment management industry while instilling a sense of social responsibility. And MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting comedian Bill Maher on Friday, July 26th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. 
I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. National Security Advisor Jack Sullivan meets today with Palestinian leaders to talk about a possible role in governing post-war Gaza. It's Friday, December 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, hostages recently released by Hamas are beginning to speak out about their time in captivity. One family who took three showers in 54 days, and one of the kids who took none shower at all on 54 days. Plus, Michigan lawmakers have voted to automatically restore voting rights to people leaving prison, making it the first state in the nation to do so. Also this hour, this weekend marks the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, and the true story of what happened may not be what you think. George Washington and Benjamin Franklin think they really went too far. You know, Washington is kind of aghast at this destruction of property. Sunny and low 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Israel continues to conduct heavy airstrikes and shelling in Gaza as fighting continues between the Israeli military and Hamas militants. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has met with Israeli leaders today and reiterated the U.S. call to limit civilian casualties. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has also met with the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross. He says he wants that group to pressure Hamas over the people it's holding hostage. More important thing that uh, my goal is, you know, in our conversations is to see how we can help the present, the present, uh, the remaining hostages. Netanyahu says there are 115 hostages. Eight are believed to be Americans. The Israeli military says it has recovered the bodies of three Israeli hostages but did not say how they had died. The leader of Hungary has blocked approval of a European Union budget that includes more than $50 billion in fresh aid to Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv that EU leaders say they will find a way to authorize those funds early next year. All but one of the EU's 27 member nations voted to approve the budget and send aid to Ukraine. The only no came from Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who is the Kremlin's strongest ally in the EU. Decisions in the European Union must be unanimous to be authorized. The EU leaders are in Brussels today, wrapping up a summit focused on Ukraine. Estonia's Prime Minister Kaja Kallas told reporters that their strong will to authorize more aid to Ukraine. She pointed out that on Thursday, the bloc voted to approve opening EU membership talks with the country. Orban abstained from that vote, but told Hungarian radio on Friday that he might find another way to block the membership talks. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kiev. Three Florida teachers are suing for the right to be themselves in the classroom. From member station WFSU, Regan McCarthy reports the state prohibits non-binary and transgender school employees from using pronouns and titles that express their gender identity. The teachers argue the law violates their right to free speech. And Scott McCoy with the Southern Poverty Law Center says it's also a civil rights violation because it creates different rules for people who are non-binary or transgender. If an employer would tolerate certain behaviors from a person based on their sex, but if you then switch the sex, then they wouldn't tolerate that same behavior, then they have, they have violated the but-for test for sex discrimination. 
The teachers in the case say they feel the Florida law is part of a larger effort to push transgender and non-binary people out of public view, and they worry that will harm and further isolate transgender students. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Tallahassee. On Wall Street, in pre-market trading, stock futures are higher. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A public library in Boston's West End could soon have a novel new feature, 119 units of affordable housing. WBOR Simone Rios reports. More than five years ago, the city started to consider building housing above public buildings. The first projects to come to fruition include a major expansion of the library branch just blocks away from Mass General Hospital. The city's Joe Backer says the estimated $117 million project comes with big support from residents of the West End and neighboring Beacon Hill. It's the idea that not only could you build a a new, modern, and expanded library, but you could also capitalize on an opportunity to put deeply affordable housing above it. Libraries in Chinatown and Dorchester could also see major remodels with affordable housing added above. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The Medford City Council is considering a proposal that would more than double the pay of the city's public school committee members. The plan increases members' annual salaries from $12,000 to nearly $30,000. Proponents say it's an effort to align pay with that of city council members. School committee members tell the Boston Herald they were unaware of the proposal. A plan that would give people in Massachusetts time off to vote has support of House lawmakers on Beacon Hill. They approved a bill yesterday that would require employers to give their workers time off to vote in person on Election Day. The plan applies to both state and municipal elections. Businesses that fail to comply would have to give the employee a full day's pay. The measure still needs to be taken up by the Senate. Travel on Interstate 195 near the Massachusetts border should be a little easier this weekend. Rhode Island transit officials abruptly closed all westbound traffic this week after discovering a major infrastructure issue. Now they have reopened two-way traffic along the Washington Bridge, but there's still likely to be significant congestion. Transit officials tell the Boston Globe they'll begin ferry service next week to help alleviate traffic. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, Photography from the Black Atlantic. This compelling compilation of works explores Black identity, community, and power. Closes December 31st. More at PEM.org. The Celtics defeated the Cavaliers last night 116-107. to That gives the Seas an undefeated 12-game home winning streak. They'll try to keep that record going when they host the Orlando Magic tonight at the Garden. The Bruins will try to make it three wins in a row tonight when they face off against the Islanders in New York. Sunny today and breezy with highs reaching the low 50s. Tonight, skies remain mostly clear and temperatures drop into the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny but cooler with high temperatures only in the mid 40s. Sunday, cloudy with a chance of afternoon rain. Temperatures will be in the low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
And I'm Leila Faldil. He says he's been hounded by the paparazzi for his whole life. But today, Prince Harry won a victory against the British tabloids. A court in London has ruled the prince was a victim of phone hacking in the early 2000s. Harry and a hundred other celebrities sued the tabloids for allegedly hacking into their phones to get scoops. When Harry testified in this case back in June, he became the first UK royal to take the stand in a courtroom in more than a century. Today, London's High Court delivered its verdict. NPR's Lauren Freyer has been following this case and joins us live from our London Bureau. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Leila. So what's the verdict? Yeah, this is actually 33 different verdicts, one for each of the 33 news articles that Harry sued over. The judge ruled in Harry's favor in 15 of those 33 individual cases, so it's a partial victory for Harry. He's also been awarded about $180,000 in damages. Harry's also always said, though, that this isn't about the money. It's about holding these tabloids to account for unethical and illegal behavior in the 1990s and early 2000s. So tell us about that behavior. Exactly what did the court find the tabloids guilty of doing? So Harry sued the publisher of the Daily Mirror newspaper for getting scoops illegally by hacking into his voicemail. And the judge ruled that that practice was widespread and habitual, is what he said, and that news executives covered it up. This was the early 2000s when your voicemail, like, might not have even had a password, or if it did, it might have been, like, your phone number. Mm. So hacking was pretty easy, and the tabloids did it a whole lot. And in Harry's case, it resulted in these juicy tabloid stories about his grief over his mother, Princess Diana's death, Mm. also about his personal relationships with girlfriends, like when he was a teenager. There was one article about a sports injury that he had that literally no one knew about except his immediate family and friends. And he has always said that this created like an air of mistrust and suspicion in his very inner circle because, you know, someone was leaking information. Yeah, sounds very invasive. Have you heard any reaction from either side of this case? So Harry lives in California. This was in the middle of the night for him when the judge issued the verdict. But his lawyer, David Sherborne, read aloud a statement from the prince. And he said this isn't a case just about hacking. It is about a systemic practice of unlawful and appalling behavior, followed by cover-ups and destruction of evidence, the shocking scale of which can only be revealed through these proceedings. So those are Harry's own words read aloud by his lawyer. A spokesperson for the publisher of the Daily Mirror, the defendant in this case, also issued a statement saying that the publisher apologizes unreservedly, but also noting, you know, these are events that happened many, many years ago and said it's really time to move forward and move on. Well, is any of this relevant now? I mean, technology has changed. Is phone hacking like this really happening anymore? Phone hacking like this is not happening, so the practice may be in the past, but lawsuits certainly are not. This is one of several phone hacking lawsuits still underway, and big names are coming up in testimony and in judgments. Um, Piers Morgan, big TV news personality here in the UK, but also in the US, he was actually editor of the Daily Mirror newspaper in the late 90s and early 2000s when this happened. The judge named him by name today, said, that Piers Morgan was aware and involved in this practice. So there could be legal legal ramifications for him and for other newspaper executives in this. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer in London. Thank you, Lauren. You're welcome.
We also have news from Israel this morning. Hostages released by Hamas are beginning to tell their stories. Their families are passing on those stories to call attention to the remaining captives seized when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports. On October 7th, the Ohlone family had crowded inside their home's safe room as Hamas fighters rampaged through their kibbutz just a couple miles from Gaza. There were two grown sisters, one of their husbands, and three of their children. The situation was dire. Inside, the house was burning and filling with smoke. Outside, they could hear gunshots, as one sister later recounted to her brother. She said, I would rather die quickly than to suffocate along with my kids. And so they opened the window, and about six or seven terrorists were standing there. This is their brother, Moran Aloni, who wasn't there that day. Hamas released the two sisters and their daughters last month during the seven-day ceasefire as part of an exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners and detainees held by Israel. Moran Aloni recently told their story in a press conference organized by the Hostages and Missing Families Forum, an organization that has sprung up to advocate for the hostages. The families were jumbled up as they were brought into Gaza, he says. And one of the children, the three-year-old Emma, was separated from the family altogether. Someone just snatched Emma from my sister Danielle hands. He says for days as they were held in a small room, his sister Sharon and her husband David Cunio were sure that Emma had died during the abduction. These were 10 agonizing days for them. On the ninth or 10th day, My sister heard a cry, and she said to David, I'm hearing Emma crying. And David said, you're imagining things. Uh, Probably thought it was because of the grief, but a mother is never wrong. Within minutes, he says, an unknown woman entered the room with Emma in her arms. There, together, they stayed for weeks more, in that same room with about 10 other hostages. It was tough to manage, he said especially the young kids. When they needed something, they needed to knock on a door and maybe someone would come there to them after one hour, maybe four hours. They weren't sure. Eventually, the family was split up again, this time when Sharon's husband, David, was taken away. They never saw him again. We're not sure what's his condition at the moment. We obviously don't know where he is. He's still there. His other sister, Danielle Aloni, was held separately, along with her six-year-old daughter, Amelia. They were moved from place to place, he says. The conditions were different each time. Daylight wasn't a given. In one of the rooms where they were held, they were ordered to be quiet for days on end. They didn't know the voices of the people they were with, only in whispers. And again, think about the child with nothing to do, with nothing to play, Unable to speak up, unable to laugh, unable to cry, unable to shout. In total, the Ohlone sisters and their children spent about 50 days in captivity. Their story aligns with what other freed hostages and their families say about the experience. They talk about the trauma of being abducted on October 7th. Their towns were overrun, their homes invaded, neighbors killed and kidnapped. Inside Gaza, the hostages were kept in small groups in unknown locations. In a meeting last week with the Israeli War Cabinet, some hostages described experiences of sexual abuse in captivity, according to the Associated Press. Medical experts say those released have been in decent physical condition, though clearly showing signs of their ordeal. 
Dr. Yael Moser-Glassberg, a physician whose hospital received dozens of returning hostages, said they had typically lost 10 to 15 percent of their body weight out of stress and limited access to food. One family of my patient that received at 10 a.m. a cup of tea and a biscuit. From time to time, there was a dry date. And then at 5 p.m., there was rice. Water was limited, too, she says, both for drinking and for bathing. We have one family who took uh, three showers in 54 days, and uh, one of the kids who took none shower at all on 54 days. And you can imagine the medical hygiene that they came back. I've never seen in my life such a terrible, terrible hygiene. Moser-Glassberg says the lack of hygiene led to skin rashes and lice. As for their mental health, no one can say what recovery will look like. Another account came from Hen Avigdori. He was reunited with his wife and 12-year-old daughter last month after they were released. Noam, his daughter, is okay physically, he says. But she still won't let him leave her side. I just asked her, well, can I get the trash down? And she wouldn't permit it. She has woken sometimes during the night screaming. There are 115 hostages still being held in Gaza, Israeli officials told NPR Thursday. Avigdori says he recently got a phone call from a father whose 24-year-old son is one of them. And the pain of this father was so touching to me that I have to lie to him, that I have to say to him, your boys will be fine. And I started to say things that I'm not necessarily believing them in 100%. But this man was drowning in despair. I have to say something. Because he saw the picture of me hugging my wife. I have to give him hope. Because hope is all I have for 50 days. Negotiations to release more hostages fell apart late last month. A ceasefire then ended, and the Israeli military has since resumed its offensive, driving up the death toll in Gaza. The families group has now started to release videos of the freed hostages speaking out on their own, including Danielle Aloni. It was terrifying, she says. You sleep and you cry. Every day that passes is like an eternity. People are in danger there. They can die just because somebody decided. The accounts have increased the pressure on Israeli leaders to find a way to bring the hostages home safely. Israeli officials say they are doing everything they can to do so. Becky Sullivan, NPR News. Our team here at NPR News has been focusing on many perspectives on the Israel-Hamas war. There are more than two. And we've also relentlessly focused on the facts. For analysis and differing views on the conflict, you can visit npr.org slash Middle East. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, immigration is already a big issue in the race to be the Republican nominee for president. We'll hear how candidates are trying to distinguish themselves from each other and from the front runner, former President Donald Trump. It's 819. Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
WBUR supporters include Davis Mom. Their divorce attorneys are committed to protecting what's most important to you. DavisMom.com. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M.com. And we need a vacation. With over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at WeNeedAVacation.com. I'm Scott Tong. We'll convene our weekly politics roundtable with a look at the legal tanglings of both the current president and his predecessor. And one expert's concerns and hopes for AI's potential. She wants to make sure strong regulations are in place to protect against bias. Next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny and windy today with highs in the low 50s. Increasing clouds tonight and we'll have lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds along with highs in the mid-40s. Sunday, mostly cloudy with a chance of afternoon rain. Highs will be in the low 50s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Thanks for following the news this morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're exploring who should be in charge of Gaza after the war ends. Keep listening. Support for NPR comes from this station and from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Michigan is the first state in the nation to restore voting rights automatically to people who are released from prison. State officials say it helps former inmates return to society. Michelle Jokish-Polo from member station WKAR in East Lansing reports. Malija G. was first incarcerated in a Michigan prison when he was about 17 years old. I came here as a youth, so I was never able to vote. After spending 36 years behind bars, he's expected to be released early next year. He's excited to vote for the very first time in the state's presidential primary in February. So now getting out and having that ability, that opportunity is just, it's it's a great feeling. And one of the things that, you know, we need to do in here is to now start making prisoners, helping prisoners become aware of this bill. The bill G is talking about is a new state law. Michigan already allows people with felony convictions to vote once they complete their sentences. But now the state will go one step further and expand automatic registration to people in prison once they are released. State Representative Penelope Cernoglu is a Democrat who sponsored the bill that was signed into law earlier this month. She says the goal of the bill is to improve access for what has historically been a disenfranchised population. 
Michigan actually has a really good rate of voter registration, uh, but we wanted to increase that even more. And um, the incarcerated population is one of the populations that is um, least likely to be registered to vote. Before this law, the Michigan Department of Corrections was already working with the Secretary of State to register incarcerated people to vote when they're released. It's part of a larger initiative to help inmates get vital documents like birth certificates and state IDs. Kyle Kaminsky is the spokesperson for the State Department of Corrections. He says the law will ensure the initiative continues regardless of who is in office. Having put these processes in place, we don't want to see them be eliminated at some point in the future. So this will, what the legislation does is it'll ensure that everybody leaving prison in the future uh, will still have that opportunity to be registered. Kyla Crane has been leading this work at the Michigan Secretary of State. She says it's not that incarcerated people don't want to participate in the democratic process, but that many don't think that they can. And that's because voting rights for people with felony convictions vary from state to state. They don't want to jeopardize their ability to remain um, outside of the criminal justice system once they have been released. So a lot of folks that we hear from just don't participate because they don't want to jeopardize their parole status or any other kind of issues with law enforcement. Crane says this law will help dispel some of that confusion and be a part of the first step in helping formerly incarcerated people re-enter society. Malija G. says when he regains his rights back next year, he's got research to do before deciding who to vote for. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Jokishpolo in East Lansing. It's Friday when we hear from StoryCorps. After years of collecting American stories, they keep finding new ones. The creator, Dave Isay, told me once that the stories just never repeat. You never get the same story twice. Now, with that in mind, consider the variety of stories you would hear as an operator on the lesbian switchboard. It ran for 25 years as a New York City helpline for gay women, fielding questions about everything from gay night spots to worries about self-harm. If you called in the 1980s, volunteer Denise Toot might have answered. The lesbian switchboard was located in an old school building. The room was a tiny room and there were no windows. It was very depressing looking, to tell you the truth. It was that old gray-green color they used to paint schools at that time. So it looked kind of dingy. But it was our place. You know, it was beautiful. Typical calls were, I'm coming to New York. What's the best bar for lesbians specifically? <laughs> but then every once in a while, you'd get somebody that would call and just want to talk. Someone from... Oshkosh, Wisconsin or something. Should I tell my parents? Shouldn't I tell my parents? The suicidal calls we weren't permitted to take because we weren't trained for that. I had a few of those calls. Don't kill yourself. Don't be ashamed of yourself. Call this number. That's all we could say, really. But I realized much later on, the switchboard was not only me helping other people, it was me helping me. My family was very close-knit, Brooklyn Irish Catholic, you know church every Sunday, go to Catholic school. And I started to realize I was gay when I was about 14. And believe it or not, at one time, I was really pretty. <laughs> and I had a boyfriend, but I didn't want to be with him. And my mother, she wanted me at 16 to marry so I could get these feelings of being a lesbian out of me. <laughs> 
she felt I was a bad influence on my younger brother and sisters. So when I graduated high school, my mother didn't want me in the house anymore, you know, and I was still like just a kid. It would have been a hell of a lot easier for me to get married and have a family and be accepted by my mother and loved by my mother, which is something I wanted, but that wasn't who I was. The impact that the switchboard had on me, I realized that a lot of people out there like me, and now I had to tell them it was okay. There's nothing wrong with you. That's what people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that no matter where they were, no matter how isolated they were, there are other people like you. You know, you had to tell them that they weren't alone. Denise Toot, the StoryCorps in New Jersey. The lesbian switchboard, now the LGBT switchboard, still operates today. By the way, if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, the Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. Events are kicking off to mark the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party this weekend, and historians are taking the opportunity to tell a more accurate accounting of what happened. It's 8.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. And Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A number of arrests are being reported in Europe today amid terrorism investigations. Prosecutors in Denmark say they're holding two people. They say four others are the target of a terror probe. Several others have been arrested in Germany, described as suspected members of Hamas plotting attacks against Jewish targets in Europe. At least one suspect was apprehended in the Netherlands. FBI Director Christopher Wray recently testified to Congress about the Wray's threat level amid the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. This is not a time for panic, but it is a time for vigilance, uh, and people should make no mistake that we are in a more dangerous time than we've been in a while. Separately, President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, is in the Middle East today for a series of meetings. He met earlier today with Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and said Israel plans to shift its war against Hamas to more precise intelligence-driven attacks targeting the leaders of the militants in an effort to reduce civilian casualties in Gaza. Extreme cold is gripping much of China, where temperatures have dropped well below zero. 
Snow and ice are causing problems in some areas. In Beijing, two subway trains collided in icy weather last night, injuring hundreds. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston is set to raise and rebuild one of its largest public housing developments. The City Planning and Development Agency approved a plan last night to redevelop the McCormack Housing Complex in South Boston. Boston Housing Authority Administrator Kenzie Bach says the $2 billion plan will replace more than 1,000 aging apartments. She says it'll also add hundreds of mixed-income units. We see this as a real example to build a community for the 21st century that both will continue to house our public housing families and will welcome new families to the site um, and do that all in a climate-resilient context. The redevelopment plan includes major infrastructure upgrades to reduce the risk of flooding at the waterfront site. Officials estimate the entire project would take about a decade to complete. It still needs zoning and permitting approval. Senator Elizabeth Warren is pushing social media company Meta to answer accusations it's suppressing Palestinian content. In a letter to CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Warren outlined concerns raised by human rights organizations about inappropriate censorship on Instagram. The company has until January to answer. Warren says if the reports are true, further legislative action could be warranted. Young hockey players from around Boston are set to take part in a citywide tournament starting today. The Mayor's Cup begins this evening and continues through the end of the month. More than 1,000 young players are set to participate in more than 100 games across the city. This is the 30th annual Mayor's Cup. It's 833. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. The Celtics are celebrating a nine-point victory at home against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Final score was 116-107. to They'll play at the Garden again tonight, this time against the Orlando Magic. And the Bruins take on the Islanders in New York tonight. Highs in the low 50s today. It'll be sunny and breezy. Clouds move in tonight as it falls to the mid-30s. Highs in the mid-40s tomorrow under partly sunny skies. Sunday, highs in the mid-50s with cloudy skies that'll likely give way to rain in the afternoon. It's 38 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Indiana University committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Presidential candidates are talking immigration. Weeks before the voting begins in Iowa and New Hampshire, Republicans are making pledges about border security and asylum seekers and who can be a citizen. NPR's Jasmine Garst is NPR's immigration correspondent. Jasmine, good morning. Good morning. Where does immigration rank among the candidates' priorities? Well, so immigration has definitely been in the headlines a lot lately. You have a historic number 
of immigrants arriving at the southern border. So it is very much on people's minds. And yet American voters have mixed feelings about it. Uh, Around half have said immigration is a major concern, but two-thirds of Americans still see it as beneficial to the country, and, and candidates are talking about it a lot. Okay, so most people see it as beneficial to the country, but uh, particularly in a Republican primary, you hear a lot of concerns about immigration. So what are the candidates promising? Former President Donald Trump is the frontrunner, and he's setting the tone here. Here's Trump saying this is going to be his first course of action if he wins the presidency again. Following the model of President Eisenhower, we will use all necessary federal, state, local, and military resources to begin the largest domestic deportation effort in American history, to send the border violators back to their home countries. Every candidate is echoing some version of this. It's actually kind of hard to tell the campaigns apart. But I do want to point out Nikki Haley. Now listen to this. Here she is saying that she would consider leniency towards undocumented immigrants who have been in the U.S. for longer periods of time. We've got to start seeing who is it, how long have they been here, have they been vetted, have they paid taxes, have they been working? She's really trying to position herself as a more middle-of-the-road Republican alternative to Donald Trump. I really appreciate hearing these uh, words of the candidates. When Trump talks about President Eisenhower, there was a mass deportation in Eisenhower's time, and that's what he's talking about again. Haley is pushing for something a little less. But there's also the question of who gets to be an American citizen. Uh, how, How widespread is the promise to end the idea, which is in the Constitution, of birthright citizenship in the United States? Oh, it's being pledged pretty much across the board. Um, Candidate Vivek Ramaswamy has even gone so far as to say he would deport the children of undocumented immigrants who were born here. Anyone who is in this country illegally and their family unit must be returned to their country of origin. That is the only way we can actually look our kids in the eye and say that we actually live in a nation founded on the rule of law. I mean, it's not only inflammatory, it's also, it's not legal. The 14th Amendment, like you pointed out, says if you're born in the U.S., you have a U.S. citizenship. Okay, so unless he's able to change the Constitution, what he's saying is we must enforce the rule of law by violating the law. That is the campaign promise that's being made. (laughs) Right. Um, But I want to ask about another aspect of this. You do hear from people, including Republicans, about the value of immigrant labor. Are any of the candidates talking about that? This is the issue where I think there's the most divergence among Republican candidates. A lot of them advocate for the enforcement of E-Verify, especially Governor Ron DeSantis, who that's been like his central part of his policy in Florida. Uh, That's a government tool. E-Verify is a government tool that allows employers to verify the employment eligibility of workers. But there's also been an acknowledgement of the labor shortage and candidates like Ramaswamy, Haley and Chris Christie have advocated for a merit-based immigration system. Changing the way that people can get in. Jasmine, thanks so much. Thank you. That's NPR's Jasmine Garst in New York. More parents are turning to melatonin when their kids can't get to sleep. And pediatricians say that's alarming. Here's NPR's Maria Godoy. Lauren Hartstein is a researcher at the University of Colorado Boulder. She studies sleep in early childhood. All of a sudden, last year... We noticed that there was a big uptick in the number of parents who were regularly giving them melatonin. 
Melatonin is a hormone produced by your brain that helps regulate sleep-wake cycles. It's also sold as a dietary supplement. Hartstein and her colleagues surveyed the parents of nearly 1,000 children between the ages of 1 to 14 and were surprised by how many kids were using it. Nearly 6% of preschoolers 1 to 4 had taken it and that that number jumped significantly higher to 18 and 19% for school-aged children and preteens. Most of the kids had been taking it for a year or longer, and one in four kids were taking it every single night. Dr. Cora Collette-Bruner says that kind of widespread use is deeply troubling. It is terrifying to me that this amount of an unregulated product is being utilized Bruner is a pediatrician at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. She says because melatonin is sold over the counter, people assume it's safe. But melatonin is a hormone, and there are concerns that it could potentially interfere with puberty. And she says there's no real data on long-term use in children. I counsel patients and families about this on a daily basis, and my colleagues, that when we don't know something in terms of what the long-term effect is, especially on a growing brain, a growing body, then we shouldn't use it without more data. Melatonin supplements are unregulated, and research has found some can contain much more melatonin than what's listed on the label. In some cases, potentially dangerous amounts. One recent study found some gummies, the most common form of melatonin given to kids, even contained CBD. The studies are really concerning in the fact that, like, you don't know what you're getting. Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris is a researcher at Northwestern University and a pediatrician at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. She says she understands why desperate parents turn to melatonin to help their kids sleep. I'm also a mom, so for all the parents out there with kids that have sleep issues, I get it. I've been there, I am there, and I have also used melatonin, like when my son was much younger. But she says, given all the unknowns, the focus needs to be on sleep hygiene first. Things like turning off screens at least an hour before bedtime, using blackout shades, and not letting kids stay up more than an hour or two past their normal bedtime on weekends and vacations. Now, if we're at a situation that we have tried everything, they've seen a sleep specialist, you know, we've kind of done all of the things, then I will prescribe melatonin. Dr. Hurd Garris says parents should definitely talk to their pediatrician before giving kids melatonin because it's possible to give too much. Signs of an overdose in kids include irritability, headaches, stomach pains and dizziness, and severe drowsiness. Those are the red flags. Pediatric overdoses of melatonin have risen in the last decade. And while most kids were treated at home, hospitalizations also went up. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that the supplement only be used as a short-term way to help kids get rest. Maria Godoy, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the business and consumerism of holiday music. Clear skies and windy today in the low 50s. It'll grow overcast tonight and will be in the mid-30s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow in the mid-40s. Back to the mid-50s on Sunday, but it'll be cloudy and there's a good chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 38 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. 
Lynn is one step closer to building 850 apartments on the Saugus River. The city approved a $45 million tax break for the development. Residents say the proposed development does not include enough affordable housing to warrant a tax break. Developers say construction isn't likely to start until 2025. A new theater opens in New Bedford this morning. Officials plan to celebrate the opening of the Steeple Playhouse. The theater is part of the renovation and restoration of one of the most historic buildings in New Bedford. Shaquille O'Neal plans to further expand his crispy chicken restaurant chain here in Boston. Earlier this year, Big Chicken announced that it would open a location here sometime in 2024. The franchise tells Mass Live it plans to bring six more restaurants to the Bay State. So far, no specific opening dates have been announced. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Tomorrow marks the 250th anniversary of the night when a group of men in Boston destroyed a whole lot of tea. The Boston Tea Party helped catalyze the American Revolution. But historians say some of the things you may have learned about it are not totally accurate. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, it wasn't about a tax hike. It was about monopoly power and lack of representation. The British Parliament had just given one company the right to sell all tea in America. This would have actually made tea cheaper, but colonists up and down the East Coast were mad they didn't have a say. In Boston, people converged on the largest building in town, the red brick Old South Meeting House. The eyewitness account said there were 5,000 people in this space. Nat Shidley oversees the historic building. That's 5,000 people in a town of 15,000, right? So a third of the town crammed in here like sardines. People hung off the balconies and spilled out into the streets, debating what to do. As night fell on the 20th day of meetings, Samuel Adams stood up and said this meeting can do nothing more to save the country. That was apparently code for more than 100 men to head to the wharf. This was the moment where there was no backing down. If you are here to cast off that yoke of parliamentary tyranny, say aye. Aye. Christine Strong is a reenactor for the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum in Boston Harbor. She recreates the events of that night when many men wore blankets and put soot on their faces to hide their identities. And we are all aware we are committing treason, aye? Aye. And we all know the punishment for treason is death, indeed. Death by hanging. And that's a fate I should hope we all avoid. Some of the men were loosely disguised as indigenous people. But despite later images and paintings, historians say there were no feather headdresses worn that night. Now comes the part of the story you likely know. The Patriots hauled chests of tea out of the ship's hulls, broke them open with axes, and chucked the tea and crates overboard. 90,000 pounds of tea piled up in the chilly harbor water, worth roughly $1.5 million today. Now here's something you may not know. The Boston Tea Party wasn't a party. Historian Robert Allison of Suffolk University says it was far from a raucous affair. 
It was disciplined and methodical. A crowd does come and watch this happening on the docks, and people comment on how orderly they are, how quiet they are. The focus was making a political statement. Nothing was looted or stolen, he says. And when all the tea was destroyed, the colonists swept the ships clean. Someone broke a padlock on one of the ships. They send someone into town to get a new one to replace it. And I have to confess, Bostonians did tend toward a lot of street violence in the 1760s and 1770s, which makes this so much more remarkable. But not everyone was on board. George Washington and Benjamin Franklin think they really went too far. You know, Washington is kind of aghast at this destruction of property. The British were also aghast and reacted strongly. They shut down the port of Boston, crippling the economy. They suspended town meetings and local elections. What Massachusetts does is actually calls for a meeting of the other colonies, which is a huge risk. It could be the other colonies will say, you wacky Puritans really went too far this time. But they didn't. The colonies rallied against the British, setting themselves on a path to the Revolutionary War less than two years later. But even after the war was won, the names of the people who boarded those ships remained secret. Now the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museums is teaming up with genealogists to figure out who participated by combing through old documents. Letters, journal entries, newspaper articles, and first-person accounts. Evan O'Brien is with the museum. He says Tea Party descendants have been coming forward, and so has the general public. It's the busiest year in the museum's history. O'Brien says that's an opportunity. The Boston Tea Party has been one of the most sensationalized moments in our nation's history. O'Brien's hoping the anniversary helps people remember it for the public debate, for the insistence on representation, and for the discipline shown by the colonists who dumped the tea 250 years ago. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBMR, it's the BBC News Hour with a deeper look into U.S. demands for Israel to do more to prevent civilian casualties in Gaza, and how a new train network in Mexico has some concern about possible damage to fragile underground caves. It's 8:50. WBUR supporters include Babson College where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. A woman from the Navajo Reservation who bootstrapped her own business in Silicon Valley is home to nurture entrepreneurs there. And she says the business world can learn from native values, too. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Hungary is blocking $50 billion in European Union aid to Ukraine after the EU agreed to open negotiations for Ukraine to join its membership. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say U.S. vaccination rates are down as the holidays approach. And New England is preparing for another wet weekend as a strong storm moves up the East Coast. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Low 50s and windy today under clear skies. It'll grow cloudy tonight as it falls to the mid-30s. Partly sunny tomorrow in the mid-40s. Mostly cloudy on Sunday in the mid-50s. There's a good chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Does all the holiday music make your heart sore or sink? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on Think or Swim. More at Schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, mortgage rates have dropped from 8 to below 7% and are down further in the last day. This will cheer home buyers if they can find a house for sale. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer reports. Freddie Mac is predicting a gradual thawing of the housing market. Freddie is a public-private agency that buys up mortgages. It says, as of yesterday, a 30-year mortgage averaged 6.95 percent. That follows the Federal Reserve's two-day meeting earlier this week when it decided to leave interest rates unchanged. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said Fed officials are now discussing the possibility of cutting interest rates, and new projections from those officials point to around three rate cuts next year. The Fed doesn't directly control mortgage rates, but it does influence them. Mortgage rates track the 10-year Treasury bond, which moves based on predictions of what the Fed will do. There's still a shortage of houses for sale because many homeowners are paying just 4% or less on their mortgages. They're reluctant to sell and buy a new home at today's higher rates. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Stock index futures are mixed ahead of the official open. The NASDAQ is up Let's see, 43% this year. The stock market so-called fear gauge. The VIX is at 12 this morning. That's a languid level of chillax we haven't seen since before pandemic. While the consensus today is the U.S. economy is bound for a soft landing where inflation ebbs with no recession, there are dissenting voices. The consensus is often wrong. And I spoke to one economist who's now watching out for unsustainable market bubbles. And now, On the Market by Prescription, the first pill for postpartum depression, Biogen and Sage Therapeutics. The other option was hours attached to tubes and needles. There will be questions of access. Without insurance, treatment with Zerzuve costs $16,000. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to automate business processes. It's a smarter way to innovate. More at UiPath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. Now here's the part where I admit I just can't stand holiday music. 
gassing up or buying toothpaste. No escape. Somebody like Paul McCartney sings, but what I hear is simply spending a fortune to my last dime. Joining us to talk sense into me are two childhood friends who separately became music stars who have created and performed holiday music. Here's one, Judy Pancoast. Let me tell you about this house. There's one in every town. It's the one at Christmas time where folks all gather around. House on Christmas Street. Judy's also been nominated for a Grammy for her children's music. Hey, Judy. Hi, David. How are you? Good. I love hearing you because you're my friend. But care to diagnose my general problem with holiday music? I don't understand when you became such a humbug because, you know, I was thinking about this. You actually gave me my very first Christmas present that didn't come from someone in my family. If it weren't for Christmas music, when would we hear Bing Crosby or, or Elvis or Karen Carpenter? We would not hear these great voices if it weren't for the most wonderful time of the year. All right. I suppose some oldies channel. <laughs> but I, I see your point. Now, on the line with us as well, Jazzman Darman Meter, also my pal since forever. He and his band New York Voices have worked on Grammy-winning projects, and they also have a holiday album. Hey, Darman. Hey, David. You don't hear the genre as a consumerism promotion device? Well, here's where it gets tricky. If you say, I love holiday music or I don't like holiday music, that's like saying, I love pop music or I don't love pop music. The genres are so diverse. Here's Darman with his fellow New York voices. So, Darman, to what extent might it also be about the intent of the artist when crafting a Christmas song? You know, like, you know, meeting their mortgage payment would be one intent, but a loftier goal, maybe? Some artistry? I think it can be both, but it's also easy to sometimes feel like a lot of them are the artists attempt to create a, an annual annuity as that song gets played every December. You know, part of it also gets into the whole side of things where Christmas as a secular, joyful season, family, friends, good cheer, and throw in a little romance, perhaps. You know, that's wonderful, but that's very different than the original meaning of Christmas in terms of the birth of Christ and all of the sacred music. And that music tends to be put on the shelf. You know, I love the, the balance of the two. Judy Pankas, what was your intent when you wrote House on Christmas Street? I mean, it wasn't just like to get a nickel out of me. The original intent was just to make people happy. I mean, really, that's it. I just want to make music that makes people laugh, have a good time, have fun. You know, I've never gotten rich off my music, so that wasn't even a thought. But I'll be honest with you. Immortality, David. I wanted a song that would live on after I'm gone. You know, the only times a lot of people hear Nat King Cole is at Christmas time. So I said to Philip, my husband, I said, you know, if I ever had a hit, I would want it to be this one because it would come back year after year after year long after I've left. Big ending now from Judy. On Christmas Judy Pancoast, House on Christmas Street, her song embraced by people who do those houses you cruise past, covered in blinking holiday lights. And Darman Meter, New York Voices, each are my friends from our childhoods in central Maine. Links to their work at marketplace.org. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, David. To play us out, here's Darman with New York Voices. Good
Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Dylan Mietinen. Our engineers are Jessen Dooler, Brian Allison, and Becca Weinman. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Sunny and windy today in the low 50s. Tonight it'll grow overcast and we'll have temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow a mix of sun and clouds in the mid-40s. Back to the low 50s on Sunday. There's a good chance that mostly cloudy skies will give way to rain in the afternoon. It's 39 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. I'm Robin Young. Award-winning author Martha Wells returns with a new Murderbot Diaries book. The best-selling series centers around a cranky but lovable AI. Murderbot's experiencing, you know, a lot of trauma, but it's still moving forward, still trying to make decisions, still trying to protect its friends. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.